The following sermon is from the Westminster Pulpit, extending the worship ministry of Westminster Presbyterian Church, Lancaster, Pennsylvania. We are a local congregation of the Presbyterian Church in America. Please contact us for permission before reproducing this message in any format. turn with me to Exodus chapter 20. You might put your finger also in Isaiah chapter 44. I'm going to ask your pardon in advance today. Some of you know I've been having some trouble with my voice the last year or so, and it seems particularly to be leaving me today. So we'll see how far I get before I'm moving my lips and nothing's coming out. I'm not really sure here. It's a little ragged. Exodus chapter 20. We're now looking at the actual commandments of God from Mount Sinai and then a supplementary word from Isaiah. We read, And God spoke all these words, saying, I am the Lord your God, who brought you out of the land of Egypt and out of the house of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me. And this word, very similar as Isaiah weaves the theme, Isaiah 44, Thus says the Lord, the King of Israel, and his Redeemer, the Lord of hosts, I am the first and I am the last. Besides me, there is no God. Who is like me? Let him proclaim it. Let him declare and set it before me. Since I appointed an ancient people, Let them declare what is to come and what will happen. Fear not, nor be afraid. Have I not told you from of old and declared it? And you are my witnesses. Is there a God besides me? There is no rock. I know not any. This is God's Word. A commentator writing about a century ago was speaking about the Ten Commandments as a whole when he said this, An obscure tribe of slaves escaped from Egypt and was pursued into the desert as an unorganized rabble. They emerged after 40 years there, possessing a moral code in ten terse sentences. And this code is so brief, yet so comprehensive, so firmly rooted in fundamental values for all societies that neither the ancient Greeks nor all the constitutional democracies created since then have improved upon these moral standards by one iota. Last time we left the nation of Israel with their leader Moses Standing before Mount Sinai, the nation was standing at the foot of the mountain. Moses was on the mountain. The mountain was wreathed in smoke and fire. It was trembling. There was thunder. People were aware that God was approaching. And today we hear the first command which the Lord spoke to his ancient people. And he speaks it as well to us as believing people today. 
Exodus 20 begins by saying, and God spoke these words. Later on in Deuteronomy 5, Moses told his people, the Lord spoke with you face to face at the mountain out of the midst of fire while I stood between the Lord and you. We do not apologize in any way for the very stunning claim being made by Scripture that these commandments are spoken out by God. They were not dreamed up by Moses' creative imagination in the way that Thomas Jefferson dreamed the language of the Declaration of Independence or Madison and others guided the words of our Constitution. These are God's words. How exactly that revelation comes to be, whether Moses heard an audible voice or something was so powerfully impressed upon his mind, God spoke these words. And so we should deeply respect what we are studying. I've already said that the law is not given as a condition of obedience, like a stepladder that you would climb up the ten steps and say, I've done what God wants. Surely I must be a saved person. That's not it. God first saved his people Israel by grace. That was emphasized in chapter 19. He rescued them by his own initiative and his own mercy, and then he gave them the law. Long before this, back in Exodus 3.14, the Lord had said to Moses in revealing himself, Moses asked who God was, and God said, I am who I am. Not the answer Moses wanted, but the answer God gave. I am the one who is self-defined and self-existing. I don't borrow anything that defines me from the natural creation. And now God was giving his law so that his perfect holiness could be matched by imperfect but forgiven holiness of a believing people who would strive to obey his law. His law was then a set of guidelines and principles drawn right out of the marrow of creation. The law existed before it was given. But now it's given. Now it's spelled out so that people could walk after the ways of the Lord. We pray every Sunday, God's will be done on earth as it is in heaven. How will God's will be done on earth? By walking in his law. Now I remind you that the Ten Commandments as we begin to study them are ordered so that the first four govern our relation to God himself and then six more govern our relations to people and things in this world. So here is the first commandment. It has a preface and then a very short, pithy statement. I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt and out of the house of slavery. And then here's the commandment. You shall have no other gods before me. This states the essential uniqueness and sovereignty and authority of God. And therefore, it becomes the foundation of all true religion. Solomon understood this. 1 Kings 8 has him at the altar of Israel praying, O Lord, God of Israel, there is no God like you in heaven above or on the earth beneath. So first of all, I want to ask today, here's the three things I'm going to deal with. What duty are we charged with by this commandment? 
What sin is condemned in the commandment and what blessing is pointed to? First of all, what duty are we charged with by the first commandment? And the answer is that we would recognize and thereby respond to the sovereign uniqueness of one and only one true holy God. If you would reduce this commandment in its duty to just a few words, you'd have the title, I think, of my message today. Only God is God. Now, we've entered an age in the 21st century when agnosticism and atheism is becoming increasingly bold and outspoken in many published works and media uh, spokesmen. There are still, however, at least in our American nation, somewhere around 90% of all people who will call themselves not atheists, but theists. An atheist, the ah means no, so no God. A theist believes in God. I would hope I'm addressing primarily theists. The 90% of Americans who say there is a God. But the question becomes, what God? And how is he defined? And we learn that quite often the God people believe in is one of their own making. He's not the God of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. He's not the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. He's not the God of the Bible. There's been uh, passed around some results of research by a particular man who did a lot of interviews, hundreds of interviews, and he he asked people, what's your idea of God? Where do you get it from? What's it like? And he talked, and one stood out in my mind. He talked to a, a girl named Sheila. And Sheila said, I'm not particularly religious. I don't remember the last time I went to church, but I believe in God. She said, my God is my own little voice inside me that tells me what to do. And I I love this. She said, maybe you would call my denomination Sheila-ism. Well, that's great. Because Sheila has many compatriots in our society. Whose God is the little voice inside them. And they can reshape that God or, or custom design that God any way they want him to speak or to dictate anything they want him to say. In other words, they are not subservient to a God outside of themselves, they are God. And that's what they believe in. How does that square with, I am the Lord, and you shall have no other gods beside me? Some of you of my generation will remember Bob Dylan writing a famous song line in which he said, I gotta serve somebody. Well, we might ask, who is ultimately worthy of being served and being adored and being worshipped? Why not a being who made the universe and gave humanity birth and put his own image on men and women? Certainly he would be worthy of some admiration if he could speak forth creation to to begin to exist in all of its wonderful patterns and, and colors of organization. Why not a God who could defeat nations as he acted on their behalf or bring forth great miracles or open the Red Sea or, or rain death down on those who wouldn't obey him? You see, God didn't come to Israel and say, worship me just because I say so. 
If you look at how this is prefaced in verse 1 of our text in Exodus, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt in the house of slavery. God's resume as he presents it is, look what I have done. I have a right to claim something because of the powerful works I have done specifically for you, O Israel. Now, you know, we live in an age when tolerance has become a strange and twisted word. We tolerate almost everything, all kinds of evil. We don't tolerate truth. We don't tolerate Scripture. And people think tolerance is a God to be celebrated. Well, let me tell you that in the first commandment, the God of the Bible proves himself to be an intolerant God because he stands alone against any possible rival beings who would even come close to himself. Worshiping him is an all-or-nothing proposition. He will not allow you to say, oh, yes, God, I think you're grand. And just bear in mind, though, that I'm going to worship my other few gods over here at the side. Intolerance towards that mere idea from the true God. To have this God as your God means to revere him, trust him, obey him. It's all or nothing. He's all-powerful, all-wise, all-merciful. He exists independently. There's nothing you can do for him that will enhance him or benefit him. And yet he desires to do things that will benefit you. And so your response ought to be reverential worship and humble obedience. John Calvin said the first commandment requires us to do this. He said, contemplate and worship God's majesty, participate in his blessings, seek his help at all times, and by our praises, celebrate the greatness of his works. Psalm 95, verse 6, is one of the fundamental clarion calls of the Scripture that tells us what to do before God in a very simple term. It says, O come, let us worship and bow down. Let us kneel before the Lord, our Maker. What duty are we charged with? To acknowledge with worship and obedience that only God is God, the God who spoke through Moses. Now, secondly, there's a sin here, and every commandment has both the duty and a sin, a positive and a negative. So what sin is being condemned by this first commandment? What we're told not to do is have no other gods before me. The commentators have a lot of discussion about what before me means. They say, well, some human being might think, well, that means in my sight. So maybe I can have my private God out behind the barn somewhere and I can go visit him and God won't have to see him. Well, tell me something that God doesn't see. And you'll understand what it means to have no other gods in his sight. No other gods anywhere. Not just in the near vicinity of his face, but anywhere at all, because he sees everywhere. And you see, the human mind is an idol factory. The human mind bends very naturally to practice what we call poly. Theism, that's your big word for today, if, it, if you never knew the word before. Many gods, polytheism, that's the natural thing that people do. Remember, 
the Israelites had just recently come out of Egypt, where polytheism had been raised to an exquisite art. They had a God for everything. There was a God for the crocodile, and a God for the river Nile, and a God for the sun, and a God for the wheat crop. And you name it, they had a God. And Israel had been enveloped in that society, sucked into the swamp of thinking that way for generations. Now their God is saying, no, no. Monotheism is the way. Hear, O Israel, the Lord your God is one Lord. That is the Shema from Deuteronomy that's going to be heard in Israel throughout her generations afterwards. One Lord, one God, monotheism. God will not share his glory. Isn't it true that one of the biggest lessons of early childhood is being taught to share? Parents, that's not easy, is it, to teach a child to share something? Honey, I only bought one candy bar. You're going to have to give half of it to your sister. Oh, joy. I, I will confess the sins of my youth. My father once bought a candy bar when I went with him on an errand, and he said, Son, I want you to give half of this to your sister. I ate the whole thing. <laughs> and my sister never knew that candy bar existed. <laughs> share. Share your cookies. Share your toys. Share time on the swing set. Sharing is good. Wait a minute. This commandment is saying when it comes to the God you worship, sharing is actually evil. You see, there are things that are not meant to be shared. We had a wedding here yesterday, a beautiful bride, tall, handsome groom. And they took vows, and in that time we declared something to be true, that now a protective cocoon, a covenant, was put around them and they were to one another what no other person could be to each other. And that if another woman came into that relationship or another man came into that relationship, that was evil. Because that re- relationship of a man and a woman as husband and wife is not to be shared. In fact, there's a whole commandment coming up about that. Well, God is saying... The glory, the worship, the honor, the obedience that belongs to me cannot be shared, and you are a fool if you share it. I have no rivals. I have no colleagues. There's nobody like me. So don't give what is mine to someone else. And yet people in 2013 are just as good as the Egyptians were in pursuing our many false gods. If you're interested in a book that would go along with The preaching of the Ten Commandments, Thomas Watson wrote a book simply called The Ten Commandments. It's, although a couple hundred years old, is written in plain English. It's a very fine scriptural book. Thomas Watson said about this commandment, to love anything more than God is to make that thing your God. Martin Luther said it just a little bit differently, but essentially the same thing. He said, a God is anything towards which we look as the source of all good, or in which we seek our shelter in time of need. What would you seek shelter in if your life was coming apart? How much money you had in the bank? Your reputation of your career? Your family? Your friends? Perhaps those things are actually your God. 
The book of Isaiah uses sarcasm or, or strong irony a great deal in chapters 44, 45, and 46. I said to the first service, why don't you regard these as a homework assignment? Read Isaiah 44 through 46 and look for the irony in which the Lord talks about idols, false gods. He says all who fashions idols are nothing. Here's an example, Isaiah 44, 15 to 17. A man cuts down a tree and uses half of it to build a fire to cook his dinner and warm himself. Then, from the other half, guess what he does? He carves a god and falls down before it saying, deliver me. The prophet Isaiah is saying, have you ever heard of anything dumber than that? A firewood god. What a total folly. And the Apostle Paul agreed, writing in 1 Corinthians 8, 4, he said, an idol has no real existence, for there is no God but one. What was Paul saying there in 1 Corinthians 8? He was basically reiterating the first commandment. There's no God but one. He's saying the joke is on you. If you put things in the role of God that are not God, you are a fool, and you'll be caught in your folly. What can you possibly suggest that you can put in God's place that will answer prayer or forgive sins or speak words of wisdom to you? I love a sentence in Jeremiah 10. That prophet wrote this, their idols are like scarecrows in a cucumber field. They cannot speak. They must be carried about. They cannot walk. Neither is it in them to do people any good. You may be worshiping a scarecrow, displacing the true God. If you think that's not true, ask yourself, what do you love the most? What do you trust most implicitly? Where do you run to when you're in trouble in need of defense or shelter? That's your idol. These rivals to God have no real existence, no power, and yet they can twist us, confuse us, erode our character. Try to serve them and you're not serving the true God. Jesus said it. You cannot serve two masters. You've got to choose one. Now, thirdly, the matter comes to see that we've seen the duty of the commandment and the sin of disobeying it. I ask, we very briefly ask, what is the blessing of the commandment, serving the true God? And this is, the answer is so huge, I could easily occupy hours, but I won't, I promise. Just suggestively, the blessing. Paul in 1 Thessalonians 1.9 speaks to early Christians, and he says to them, look, you are in a wonderful new position as Christians because, he says, you have turned from idols to serve the true and living God. Now, doing that cannot help, Paul suggests, but be a path of fulfillment, a way of peace, a position where things make sense that didn't make sense before, where there's purpose for you being in this world, and there's hope even beyond death. 
Psalm 144 says, happy, deeply blessed is the people whose God is the Lord. David once began to sort of tick off a whole list of blessings from God like this. Psalm 103 contains it. He said, bless the Lord, O my soul, and forget not all his benefits. Here are some of the good things that belong to serving God, in other words. And here's a few of them. He forgives all your iniquity. He heals all your diseases. He redeems your life from the pit. He crowns you with steadfast love and mercy. I've run out of fingers. He satisfies you with good so your youth is renewed like the eagles. And on it goes. David said, how, much, how many pages would I need to list the blessings of belonging to my God? But let me say this to you. The most outstanding blessing we have requires us to step out beyond the text of Exodus and beyond the text of Isaiah to that which those chapters were only prophesying that did come true in the later narrative of the Bible, and that is the revelation of God so that we may know him as he has revealed himself in this world. Because you see, the God who is one And one and only is also three in one. And that's not theological double talk. The narrative of the Scripture says, if you want to know the wholeness of God, don't look only at this thundering deity on Mount Sinai who spoke through Moses. That is God. And he is to be held in honor and awe and reverence. But we know more than this. The Scripture tells us God is Father, Son, Spirit, a wondrous unity within a trinity. That, of course, is a huge subject unto itself. But the Bible builds up to telling us that this God, this God who thundered on Sinai, this God who said, don't get too close. Don't toy with me. I am to be revered and respected. This God also wanted to be known. He also is a God to call Father, Shepherd, Friend, Abba. And you see, the way we know him in that is because Jesus Christ is the one who perfectly displayed God in history. In him, the fullness of the Godhead dwelt in a human body. The one and only God made himself known in the one and only Savior. You know, there are actually people, I read a scholar, a liberal scholar, it's interesting. You know, the world fawns over liberal Bible scholarship. They get programs on the History Channel all the time. And uh, this guy said, there's no clear statement in the New Testament that Jesus claimed to be divine. My chair flipped backwards. What Bible are you reading? You just left out the whole Gospel of John, for example. But especially a verse like Romans 9.5. In Romans 9.5, Jesus Christ is called God over all. The one and only of Mount Sinai is displayed to men in Jesus Christ. And so this mountain that the Israelites dared not touch, you see, God used his law to show what sin was, to show what his character was like. And then he brought Jesus Christ forth 
to fulfill that law, to live it out perfectly, and to say this. And and listen to the first two words because it's not coincidental that they match some things I've said before. Jesus said, I am, pause, the way, the truth, and the life, and no man comes to the Father except by me. The I am God is seen in Jesus Christ. And let me tell you, the, you know, the wonderful dualism or pairings of the Bible, you have Mount Sinai in the Old Testament, you have another mountain that's emphasized in the New Testament. It's called the Mountain of Transfiguration. It's a place where Jesus was seen by Peter, James, and John in his glory in a transcendent way as if the veil of his flesh was pulled back and who he was before creation was visible and who was with him, Moses and Elijah, the representatives of the law and the prophets. And what happened there? The Father spoke to these disciples and said, this is my beloved Son. Listen to him. The same God who spoke from Sinai said, now I've come close. Now you can see my portrait. And so Paul could write in 1 Timothy 2 and say there is one God, first commandment, but there is also one mediator between God and man, the man, Christ Jesus, who gave himself a ransom for all. You must not only bow before some God. It's not adequate to simply be a theist. It's a good thing to be a theist. But there are theists who will be in hell because they do not believe in the true God. The God you must believe in is the God of Mount Sinai, the God who revealed himself in law and then revealed himself again in his Son who fulfilled that law, died on the cross, rose from the grave, ascended on high, and is not merely a Savior. He's the only Savior. One God, one Savior. Only God is God. Amen. Our Father, you make demanding claims. If any man or woman made such claims, we would probably want to lock them up. But you, O God, created this universe. You opened the Red Sea. You spoke laws which exceed the greatest legal minds that have ever tried to think what is human morality and what should it look like. So we're ready to say, you are God. How I thank you that in Jesus Christ, you brought the picture up close for us. I pray today, Father, that you would call every one of us away from the folly of our own pictures of God, our own imaginations, of thinking that we would create God to worship like Sheila did. Let us bow before you, the only true and exalted God. Through Jesus Christ, we give you praise. Amen.